and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode 32.3. This is the third episode in our series on Big Bend National Park. In this episode, Brian speaks with Dr. Thomas Schiller of Ross State University, all about dinosaurs and the geology of Big Bend National Park. Send us your questions or comments to hello at everybody'snps.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Now let's get to the conversation. I'm here with Dr. Thomas A. Schiller, a paleontologist at Saul Ross State University in Alpine, Texas. Doc, I'm really excited to uh, speak with you now as a 44-year-old, but also my overgrown inner 10-year-old is also really excited (laughs) to talk to you. So thank you for taking time out to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So Alpine, Texas, you're not that far, Texas geography, from Big Bend National Park. So uh, I'm really excited to, to speak with you about this because we have just come about a month ago, six weeks ago from our trip to Big Bend, where uh, it was our first time seeing the landscape, but also learning a little bit about the geological history and the biological history, which is, uh, for a layman, a bit stunning because Big Bend, as we saw it in February 2020, is, you know, that's not the Big Bend you would see 100 million years ago, 200 million years ago, and it was stunning on how different it was. I think just from the start, can you just give a thumbnail sketch of how this area of the world has changed over the eons? Sure. Yeah. And it's a really long story. You know, um, in geology and in paleontology, we work in kind of a long time scale. Most people think of times and time in terms of years, maybe tens of years. In geology, we're talking about millions and in some case, billions of years. And Big Bend really represents millions and millions of years of history. And as you mentioned, the, the landscape has changed quite a bit over those those millions of years. So the the story, at least when it comes to Big Bend geology, uh, starts way back in in the Paleozoic. So basically, the first period of time where where life begins to proliferate on Earth. So we're talking around 500 million years ago, and the rocks that formed back then, we really don't find them within the park. But if you're going to tell this story about the the geologic history of Big Ben, you do have to mention these older rocks. So what what side of the park did you guys enter through, the east or the west? We entered through the north coming down, but then we we ended up we were there a week, so we ended up less than a week, but we ended up spanning east to west of the park. So we got a good cross section of the park. Okay. Very good. So um the northeast entrance, if you come down through Marathon, Texas, as you're driving towards the park, you are driving through kind of these oldest rocks that are exposed in the region. And if you recall, if, if you did drive in between the park and, and Marathon, if you look off to the west, you see these hills that have these big folded rocks cutting through them. Some of them are white, some of them are black, but they're really easy to, to, to see. They're, they're really distinctive. These are rocks that were deposited over the course of like 300 million years in a, a basin that existed before Pangaea even formed. So imagine this kind of shallow sea, this shallow basin 
filling in with all of these sediments, just like the oceans do today, over the course of a few hundred million years. All of these sediments, which ultimately become sedimentary rock, were then thrust up onto the Paleo-North American continent. So uh, the kind of process that leads to those rocks being pushed up onto the continent is one of the earliest orogenic events, is what we call them in geology. This is kind of a fancy term for, for mountain building. And this occurred in the later part of the Paleozoic during the, the Permian period. So just before the, or a few million years before the dinosaurs show up. So we have all these sedimentary rocks that formed within an ocean, basically, or a basin that are pushed up on the continent. And then over several million years of erosion, the roots of those, those once tall mountains become exposed. And we see those as you're driving south of Marathon towards Big Bend. So these are some of the oldest rocks, and this is part of the earliest story of the Big Bend region. Now, when you get into the park, you start getting into younger rocks that accumulated during the Mesozoic era. The Mesozoic is commonly known as the time of the dinosaurs because the dinosaurs showed up in the first or during the first period of the Mesozoic, the Triassic. Um, in Big Bend, the rocks that we have exposed related to that period of time are mostly Cretaceous, so the last period of the dinosaurs. And the, the oldest rocks that we have related to that period formed within another shallow seaway that existed in North America. And you can see those just as you come into the park on either side as you drive into the Big Bend Grob and the Big Bend Basin. If you're coming in through the northeast, you see these big cliffs off to the east forming the Sierra del Carmen's and the Dead Horse Mountains. Those are remnants of these, these Cretaceous marine sedimentary rocks. And then on the west side, if you're coming through Studi Butte Terlingua, you see another big cliff, and those are even more Cretaceous sedimentary rocks. So that's kind of the, the second part of the story. Now, the, the third part of the story happens as the Western Interior Seaway, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm making short work of all this, but we can talk about each one of these points specifically if you'd like. The, the next phase of that story is when the Western Interior Seaway starts to, to recede. Okay, so imagine we have this big shallow sea that's stretching from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to Canada, and over a few million years, it starts to recede down to the southeast, back towards the Gulf of Mexico. Now, along the western margin of that interior seaway is kind of the ideal environment for the dinosaurs at the time. So we have uh, initially in the Big Bend region, this coastal environment that's really dynamic. We have deltas, we have shallow marine uh, deposits, we have kind of uh, more coastal type environments all of which are occupied by dinosaurs and other big vertebrate animals. So this is where we find the Aguja Formation, or this is what the Aguja Formation represents, and we'll talk about that later. But we find a lot of dinosaurs preserved in these sorts of, of deposits. Now, jumping forward as the seaway continues to recede, in fact, it's almost all the way to the Gulf of Mexico at this time, we're now dealing with an environment that is, that is entirely terrestrial. So during that time, we have dinosaurs are still around, 
But instead of having these coastal environments, we have strictly terrestrial environments, rivers, and floodplains. And this is the time where we find the big long-necked dinosaur, Alamosaurus, and the giant flying reptile, Quetzalcoatlus. And the next part of the story most people are familiar with. It's probably the saddest part of the story, at least for me as a, as a paleontologist, is the mass extinction event that takes place 65, 66 million years ago at the end of the Cretaceous, which wipes out all of the non-avian dinosaurs, the non-bird dinosaurs. Following that extinction event, um, we have kind of a slow transition in terms of the biology where mammals start to, to kind of proliferate in the environment. And so following the extinction of the dinosaurs in Big Bend, we start to find deposits that contain mammal bones, mammal teeth and other mammal bones. The next stage in the story involves volcanism. So igneous activity, the same driving force that, that, that caused the Western Interior Seaway to be driven back to the southeast is the same tectonic force that leads to volcanoes forming in the Big Bend. And this is the, the period that's, that we relate to, like the Chizos Mountains and all the big, stunning igneous features that we see both in the interior of the park and to the north and to the west of the park. Then the final stage is where uh, tectonic forces shift, um, starting around 26 million years ago. And instead of the North American plate being compressed, we have tension on the plate. Okay, this is, this is based in a range time, where instead of driving up big folded mountains, we're forming what are called horsts and grobbins. Basically, where big blocks of rock are being faulted and dropped down throughout the interior of, the, of North America. And this affects Big Bend. Probably the best evidence we have of that in Big Bend is Big Bend itself, the, the physiography or the, or the topography of Big Bend itself. As you drive into the park, you're going down in elevation. You're basically going down into one of these big robins, a big down-dropped block of the continent. And you can see that on the east and west side of the park, you have two big faults. You have the Del Carmen's Fault on the east side and the Terlingua Fault on the west side. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Terlingua Fault, that's where Santa Elena, Santa Elena Canyon cuts. The river cuts through forming Santa Elena Canyon. So that's kind of the, the latest stage. Following that, we have a period of erosion and infilling of the basin. So imagine having topography just like we see today with two big faults on either side of the park and then having that almost completely filled in with sediment over the course of a couple of million years. And then after another couple million years, that sediment is eroded down so that we have the, the topography that we see today with, when we visit the park. So yeah, what was that about? 15 minutes. You, yeah. That's that's pretty good for for a long story. I have to tell you what, that was that was quite the time machine where we we in 15 minutes, less than 15 minutes by my count, we managed to have uplift, erosion, the rise of the dinosaurs, an inland sea. We killed off the dinosaurs, the inland sea receded, the rise of the mammals, some volcanism, and here we are. That's a that's quite the and when you say geological yeah. time, I don't know, I'm not that impressed. That was pretty quickly how we were able to rip through that. Yeah. So 
Well, it's it's been a good show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, and and not to, you know, usually uh, we don't we don't talk about how the sausage is made, but we're recording a few podcasts today, and we just got off uh, the phone with an astronomer up at Cornell University who, who we spoke about the night skies at Big Ben. So I just rolled from cosmological time to geological time. And it is quite, in all seriousness, it's quite the time machine to go through that. And it's quite daunting to wrap your mind around that, that trip in, uh, in, in just a short amount of time. But we, we did it. And I think that's what I want to drill in at, that is you roll into this desert area. And again, there's diversity in this desert. Of course there is. But you roll into this desert area and it was an inland sea several hundred million years ago. It was completely and utterly different. And it was different from that uh, a few hundred million years before that, and it changed over time. So I think that's the idea when you're when you're there that you're standing in uh, probably waist deep water at some point a few hundred million years ago or, or more, uh, and here you are in this arid desert, which is just a it's just again it's something to wrap your mind around. But yeah. it's along those lines. Is it because there was a shallow sea, uh, probably rich in biology, that we see so many fossils? I mean, uplift and tectonic events, volcanism happened all across the globe and all across North America, more or less. Why is it that Big Bend National Park is so rich in fossils? Well, you have to look at things from both a biological standpoint and a geological standpoint. I kind of have the benefit of, of being a, a trained geologist. I went through school um, and got my degrees in geology. A lot of paleontologists are, are trained as biologists. So I can look at it kind of from both, both sides. And both of those components are important. So something you've mentioned already, if we look at the, the environment during the time of the dinosaurs in this region, like I said before, these are really kind of ideal habitats. So um, the earliest dinosaur bones that we find, um, we find them in what's called the Aguja Formation. To kind of set the stage or, or to kind of explain what the environment would have been like, imagine kind of a, a subtropical coastline. With, with trees, palm trees, a really kind of verdant landscape. Now, of course, animals are going to like living in, living in these places. If we look at modern coastal settings where there's a lot of plant life, plenty of water, plenty of food, we find modern animals um, living in these places. And the dinosaurs really loved it. Now, the second side of that coin, if we look at it from a geological standpoint, because the, the Laramide orogeny, this mountain building event that, that causes the Western Interior Seaway to recede, because it's uplifting mountains off to the West in Mexico, that's driving sedimentation. When you uplift new rock, that increases the amount of sediment that's being generated. And why that's important when it comes to, to fossils is that increases sedimentation rate so that when something dies, if a dinosaur dies, it can be covered quickly. It can be buried quickly, which is one of the requirements for fossilization. So we have this kind of perfect combination of a, a biologically rich area, but also in a geological sense, it's kind of the perfect circumstances to, to preserve fossil bones. Now, jumping forward to later stages of the Cretaceous, after the Western interior has moved, Obviously, the environment changes, and we get to more of an upland-type environment where we still have plenty of plant life. There's plenty of food for the dinosaurs, but it's not this kind of lush coastal environment. It's a little, it's uh, semi-arid, but 
again, this is where geology plays an important role because in the region, in, in this region of Texas during the time, there's still uplift that's taking place related to the Laramide orogeny. And in Big Bend, we had a, a inland basin, a terrestrial basin forming between two big folds. And each one of those folds is providing sediment into that basin, allowing the, the fossil bones to be preserved. So it's both biologically significant and geologically significant. Now, the, obviously, the stuff, the animals that were living um, in, the, in the shallow interior seaway, the marine animals, those are going to be easily preserved because that's where the deposition is taking place. So we can't discount the cool stuff that we find in those marine rocks because we have things like giant marine reptiles like mosasaurs, right, and, and shelled cephalopods and ammonites and fishes. So it's, it's just a really diverse place in terms of, of paleontology. And that goes all the way back to the Paleozoic, too. We find fossils in those rocks as well. So I'm kind of biased towards the Cretaceous animals and plants, but both in the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic, we have some pretty unique conditions where we, we preserve a rich fossil history. Well, let's, let's play on your bias here. So the Cretaceous period, what's something surprising that you or your colleagues have learned about that period in relation to what you're finding at Big Bend? You know, what surprised you about whether it's the, the food chain, the lifespans, the size, the scale, uh, about that Cretaceous period or the, the dinosaurs that were living during that time? So the, the most puzzling thing, at least for me and my, my colleagues that I work with, is the fact that it appears that the dinosaur fauna and even other groups of animals that we have here in the Big Bend seem to be unique. So... Big Bend isn't the only place in North America where we find Cretaceous dinosaurs. We go all the way up along the Rocky Mountain Corridor. There, there are dinosaurs found all over the place. But it seems that Big Bend either preserves a unique sliver of time that we don't have preserved elsewhere, or at the very least, a really unique group of animals that we don't find elsewhere. So when we look at Big Bend, we look at the area of Big Bend, it's, it's really awesome that we have a national park here because there's no other comparable setting anywhere else in, in North America. So we have this unique fauna, this unique uh, group of dinosaurs and other animals that only can be found here, and it's preserved. Okay, So if we go up to Montana or Utah or Canada, these other places where they find a lot of dinosaurs, we don't quite find the same ones. There's a little bit of overlap, but whenever we find something new in the Big Bend, it's just that. It's new. It's, it can't be compared to anything else. So that's what's really interesting to me. And what keeps me going back looking for dinosaurs is chances are if I find something, if it's unique, it's, it could be a new species. That's amazing. As a layman, I assumed we've been digging for dinosaurs now for a while, that we have exhausted all the species, not all the species, but at least the bigger ones, we kind of know what they are. But I was really pleased to learn that you're still discovering new species of dinosaurs. And I, I guess that's part and parcel to this, for whatever reason, this unique slice that you have in Big Ben, but you are discovering new species. Yeah, that's right. And fairly recently, the 2000s have been really a really prolific time for finding new dinosaurs, not just dinosaurs, new lizards, 
new mammals, all sorts of stuff. So now that's a good question. Is there uh, is there advances in how you search for dinosaurs, or is it still as it was a hundred years ago, where it's it's a team with a with a shovel and a spade and be very careful if you hit a bone. I mean, is have have the has it advanced in terms of how you look for dinosaur bones? It's it's still very old school, like you described. Shovels and picks and and a team of of people who are willing to go out in the desert for a week and dig up big dinosaur bones. So professionals like yourselves, I assume, make up the bulk of that. But could again going back to layman, could a family who wants to visit Big Bend, if they knew enough in advance, could they participate? on a dig? Is that something that's available? The short answer, uh, no. <laughs> Not in the national park. Oh, come on. So. You see where I was going. I was ready to volunteer our family to come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I get that a lot. I get to take students out there. That's about the closest thing I can, I can do to kind of the general population. But yeah, the, the park strongly advises people do not try to, to collect or dig up bones themselves. So obviously, you're not going to want to go out there and, and try to dig up something yourself. And in terms of working with a professional, even our activity is really restricted. The process of being permitted to work in the park is, is not easy. I've been fortunate enough. I, kind of, I was kind of grandfathered in because my, my mentor, Tom Lehman, worked down there in Big Bend doing paleontology for years and years since the early 80s. And the first permits that I got on to do work had his name on them as well. So it's hard for professionals to, to go down there and work. And the reason is, is because Big Bend is very protective of their fossil resources. Because it represents such a unique place, they really want to protect it. So in order to go out there and to do paleontological work, to go dig up dinosaur bones, you have to really justify it by saying that it, it will be of some sort of scientific benefit to do so. Sure. No, and I would also imagine that, uh, and I was being flip about shovels and picks and that sort of thing, but you, the process is, a, a, I'm sure, a, a little bit more exacting uh, and gentle than you, you don't want a knucklehead like me throwing around a pickaxe and doing more damage than good. And just the, the time it would take to train a volunteer up well, given your limited time, it just, just doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. So I, I, it all makes sense, but I had to ask anyway. Yeah, yeah. And there are places throughout the country the, that are privately owned, and they'll let people participate in excavations. A good friend of mine who, who was actually the park paleontologist for a few years, he owned a ranch near Terlingua. And he would have people come out and let them dig stuff up. Uh, the important thing is if you're going to do something like that, you have to recognize or you have to be certain that you're not digging up something that's scientifically important. Okay? Because like you said, you don't want someone going out there and, and swinging a pickaxe and yeah. breaking an important bone in half. Right. Now, the, fun, the funny thing is, I think you're, you're right in, in how you're imagining at least the early part of the process, because this is where, and don't tell any of my grad students this, but this is where the grad students really... Uh, are, are, are helpful because in some cases you really do need people out there who can swing a pickaxe for, for a few hours every day because not all of these bones are like you see in, in movies like in Jurassic Park where you can just gently brush off some sand and excavate it that way. But a lot of times there's feet and feet and feet of overburden is what we call it, rock that's, that's encasing the bone 
that the only way to get to the bone is to swing a pickaxe and shovel away <laughs> for hours and hours and hours. And that's one of my favorite parts of the job. There, there aren't too many of the sciences out there where you can say half of my job is digging holes. Right, right, right. But when you finally do get to the bone, that's where the really tedious exacting process begins. And this is what you usually see in documentaries and, and movies where you're down there on your hands and knees with little brushes and picks kind of carefully removing all of the stuff that's adhering to the bone. So there, there is a little bit of finesse, but the early stages is, is just like you described, swinging pickaxes and shoving. By the way, Doc, I'm on to you, geology professors. I, I think we, we interviewed another a geologist at another park, I think probably Grand Canyon. And I mentioned the story, which was one of my favorite, in all seriousness, one of my favorite classes as a liberal arts major that I took was a two semesters of geology, not the rocks for jocks, but, but a real class where instead of lab, we took field trips out to West Virginia with our professor. And I still remember him, Dr. Richard Tolo. And we were out there uh, doing field work in beautiful West Virginia. And, uh, and I remember turning to him and saying, Doc, this, is, uh, this isn't bad that you're getting paid to be outside doing this. And he turned to me and he said, Brian, why do you think I, why do you think I got this degree? Right? And it just dawned on me, oh yeah, that probably makes sense that if you like the yeah. outdoors and doing this, this is the great spot to be in. So, I, well, this is, this is also great, but you mentioned how protective the park is of all their dinosaur assets. Now, we got a glimpse of, of how they show that off and interpret that, but what, what does the park do with all of these great park assets? How do they, how do they display it? And then what do they do with everything they can't display? So the protocol is in a national park, if something is collected, it will ultimately end up at a federal repository. Now the park doesn't have a repository on site. So fossils that are collected within the park, rarely do they ever spend much time in the park itself. They're taken off to an institution. I bring it here to Sol Ross. I can work on it as long as I need to prepare the fossil, describe it, write up a paper. But it's understood that once I'm finished, it's going to go to a repository. And I use the vertebrate paleo lab at UT Austin. So the place has to be designated by the federal government that they will take care of and preserve those fossils. And when it comes to the VPL, they have hundreds and hundreds of fossils that have been collected all over the country, a lot that have been collected in Big Ben. Now, the, the stuff that you're seeing, like if you go to the fossil discovery exhibit, which is kind of the, the main park resource that they use for education, at least when it comes to geology and paleontology. A lot of that stuff, it, are, are, those are replicas. So those aren't actual bones. They do have some actual fossils, some of the shells that you see in there, the oysters and things. But all the big vertebrate fossils are replicas. So those aren't actual fossils that are on display. The real fossils are probably in some dusty drawer somewhere where the public can't see them. Right. I imagine when you say federal repository, I'm imagining the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where that scene where they're oh, oh, yeah. top men, <laughs> Dr. Jones, where they're wheeling this into a huge warehouse and, and there's a Tyrannosaurus Rex femur probably somewhere in there. But uh, exactly. I, I did, you, you mentioned the, the site that the National Park Service has. And, and even though they were replicas, it was for us, again, layman, uh, and our kids, uh, a great education. And again, it, I thought how they walked you through the different periods and how the landscape changed uh, painted a very important picture. Then the other end of that, it was just how many fossils that we ha they have found, that it wasn't just 
a couple here, a couple there that are that are in you know one room somewhere that there are thousands and thousands, it seems like. And probably, again, fossils go to, I'm not just talking about the bigger animals, but even the smaller shellfish type of thing, which are everywhere, but just thousands and thousands of even the, the ones of size that they've been able to pull out of the Big Bend area that that is somewhere, right? So that, which, and they're still finding, as you indicate, they're still finding more. There's still more to dig. Yeah, and, and the fossil discovery exhibit for the people listening out there, if you ever visit the park, you absolutely need to go to the fossil discovery exhibit. To me as a paleontologist, as a geologist, and as an educator, it is one of the best resources they have there. And it's relatively new. It, it opened up, I think it's been three years ago now. Uh, before that, there was really kind of a terrible exhibit there. Um, and I think everyone involved in the park will agree that, that the previous exhibit was pretty bad. It was always being uh, uh, broken into and it was kind of decrepit. Nothing like the new exhibit. Now, you kind of recognized the, the general setup or layout of the exhibit, which is you can walk, you can physically walk through geologic time. You can go through that same story that I, I told at the beginning of, of the podcast here, and you can see all of the things that lived during those times, but you can also read about what's happening geologically. So you go from the shallow interior seaway, all of the marine life that's living during the time, then you see how the geology, the landscape has changed, and you move into the time of the Aguja Formation, where the dinosaurs first show up in the rock record. And then you enter that big, beautiful open area in the middle, which is a great teaching area. That's where I gather all my students and have my big, big lecture on, on Big Bend paleontology. And there you have a big replica of a T-Rex skull and a, a Dinosuchus skull. And then you have the glorious Quetzalcoatlus hanging from the ceiling, and you can see the landscape off in the distance. It's all open. And then you finish up the story in the last kind of corridor. So again, if you ever take your family there, that is one of the first places you should visit because it really tells the whole story. And as you, as you traverse back and forth across the park, you can see all these things that are being described. Um, and in some cases, there are areas where you can, you can say, well, that's where Quetzalcoatlus was discovered. As you're coming in the west side of the park, Quetzalcoatlus was, was discovered just a couple of miles from the entrance there. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's a great tip. It's actually heartening and affirming to hear that a professional endorsed that exhibit because, again, just us. And we luckily went at the beginning of our trip to that exhibit because it then instructed the rest of our trip for us. And we also saw a ranger program there. So we, we went there and, and got a lecture by a ranger. Uh, and then speaking of education, you also have your own radio show as well. Do you want to just speak a little bit to that? Sure. Yeah. We've, so we've been recording episodes since the beginning of last summer. So we actually have over 40 episodes that we've recorded. Only three of those are available on YouTube right now, but you can find that by searching for Science Nights in the Morning. That's Nights with a K. We thought it was a clever name. Uh, it turned out that we were, well, so, so the, the story goes, we were supposed to have a, a nighttime show. So we were going to call it Science Nights, but then they changed it to a morning slot. So we got creative and called it Science Nights in the Morning. <laughs> anyway, it's Science Nights with a K. You can find, find us on YouTube if you look for Middle of Nowhere Radio. You can find us on bigbenradio.com. Okay, our shows are streamed there every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Time. We have a Facebook page that you can check out, 
where we oftentimes upload our videos, but we also upload any sort of interesting scientific article that we find. The three people involved are me, there's a biologist, Sean Graham, and an astronomer slash physicist, Dr. Anuban Bhattacharjee. And we talk about a variety of scientific topics, including those related to Big Bend National Park and West Texas and all that. So those are all the different places you can check out uh, the Science Nights. So check it out. We, we have a hotline, too. I can't remember the phone number off the top of my head. But if you have a question for us, if you'd like to listen to one of our episodes, just check out our Facebook, write a comment. Uh, we'd like to hear from people out there. Well, I think what an amazing resource to have if you're planning on visiting the park is to is to uh, listen to some of those listen to some of those episodes either on the on Big Bend Radio or on YouTube as you upload them. Uh, what a great background to the park and giving that context of of what you're going to see. So, Doc, when we're looking at over Big Bend, we saw some of these uh, conical deposits. I think you may have mentioned this before, that were some evidence of the extinction event. Exactly what are those and, and why are they so conical? What, what are we looking at from that extinction event perspective? Well, you, you, you're probably looking at some more recent volcanic rocks. I wouldn't say that those are related to the extinction event. The reason I say that is because we really have no physical evidence of the extinction event in Big Ben which is kind of another interesting part of, of the whole geologic history. So if you see any kind of black conical-shaped structures, maybe you're referring to the black hills that you yes. can see from the, yes. from the fossil discovery exhibit. Correct. Those are, those are igneous features that formed after the extinction, so several millions of years after the extinction. But you bring up a good point, and something I didn't mention is, is the extinction event itself. In many places in North America, we find evidence of the extinction because the most likely culprit was a big impact that occurred off the coast of Mexico. Now, the puzzle, another puzzling thing about Big Bend is we have that interval preserved within what's called the Black Peaks Formation. We have that interval preserved, but we don't have the type of evidence that we see in other places. In other words, we don't have that discrete layer. Mm -hmm. The iridium anomaly is what it's called that we can find in other places that preserve the boundary. So that's another big question we have down here in Big Bend is why exactly are we missing that? Do we have some missing time here? Is it just not present here? We recognize it, though, based on paleontological evidence. Basically, we see the dinosaurs. We find dinosaur bones all the way up to that point. And then afterwards, we find mammal bones that are paleocene, that are cenozoic belonging to animals that lived after the extinction. So that's another big question that we have. Now, the igneous activity, and I'm sorry if we're running out of time here, the igneous activity relates to the same kind of broad ge uh, geologic process of plate tectonics that caused the western interior to migrate and all this, where we have the subduction of a big oceanic plate beneath the continental North American plate, mm -hmm. and that drives volcanism within the interior of the continent. So the rocks that you see up in the Chizos Mountains, for example, those were all generated back in 30, 30 or so million years ago. So well after the dinosaurs have gone extinct. Got it. Well, thanks for that. that and that's kind of interesting that somehow you're missing that inflection point, which uh, again, it's another mystery. And again, it's amazing on how, how many mysteries, the more you learn, the more mysteries you're uncovering, it seems like, yeah. as a class. So I just want to end here. I began with talking about how excited my inner 10-year-old was. Well, I thought 
if you don't mind, we could end with you talking to a real 10-year-old and a real seven-year-old as well. So sure. my, my daughters who have caught the paleontology bug, and, and again, part of this was going to Big Ben, they each have a question for you that they've been working on too. So Doc, do you mind if they just ask you a quick question? Let's do okay, it. Okay, here's our, here's our youngest right here. How big was the sea at Big Ben? How, how big was the sea? At Big Ben, yes. At Big Ben? So when the Western Interior Seaway was around, it would have covered all of Big Bend, at least in the mid part of the Cretaceous. On a broader scale, geographically speaking, the, the Western Interior would have existed all the way in between the, the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains from east to west, and then extended all the way from the Gulf of Mexico up to Canada. So it crossed the entire United States and, and Canada, basically. It's amazing and how that sea is gone, that, that was, it was that big. So yeah. now we have a question from my oldest, the 10-year-old. How many dinosaurs were there at Big Bend? So that's kind of a tough question to answer. You can, you can talk about the number in terms of how many animals or the number in terms of species. I'm not sure exactly how many species. I want to say off the top of my, my head, 80 different species of, of vertebrates, not just dinosaurs, have been described from Big Ben. But in terms of numbers of animals, there would have been a lot. And there would have been a lot of a specific type of dinosaur. Now, this is a really good question because it lets me talk about dinosaurs. But in the Cretaceous, the most common of the big dinosaurs belong to a group of dinosaurs called the hadrosaurs, uh, which are the duck-billed dinosaurs. Think of ducky from, from land before time, right? They were everywhere. Now, the reason we know that is because when I go out looking for dinosaur fossils, nine times out of 10, if I find a dinosaur bone, it belongs to a hadrosaur. So much so that the common term we use for hadrosaurs is the cows of the Cretaceous, because they would have been moving around in these big herds with who knows how many animals, but we find them everywhere. So a lot of times when you hear about new dinosaur discoveries made or you watch a documentary, you see someone uh, digging up this spectacular skeleton of a T-Rex or a skeleton of a Triceratops or something like that. Well, the reality is most of the time when we find a dinosaur bone, it belongs to one of these duck-billed dinosaurs. It's not too bad. They're pretty cool looking animals as well. So yeah, and she's, oh, she's, yeah. And they, she's a great... They were really big too. They were really big animals. And I think they're cool. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is we, we find a lot of material from their, the body behind their head, their postcranial skeleton, but we don't find a lot of their skull material, which just so happens to be the most useful bones in the, in the body. So the more recent dinosaurs that have been described from the park are hadrosaurs, and we were able to, to name new species because we had some skull bones. That's great. Is there just bad luck or is there some reason why you're not finding the skulls? Even at a big dinosaur like that, even in the biggest dinosaurs, the big long neck dinosaurs, the skull is still made up of really thin, fragile bones. So they just don't preserve that well. They, they, they can be crushed. They can be disarticulated, washed away. So that's, that's probably why we don't find many of them. Got it. Well, as usual, the toughest questions come from the youngest people. So Oh, yeah. We really appreciate that. Again, just wrapping up here with Dr. Thomas Schiller, a paleontologist at Saul Ross State University in Alpine, Texas, has been talking to us about geology and uh, paleontology and geological time at Big Bend 
National Park. Again, thanks, Doc, so much. So very much. That was, a, that was an amazing trip through time. And uh, we very much appreciate it. We're looking forward to seeing you uh, out there the next time we're there. Yeah. And you're very welcome. That was a lot of fun. And thank, thanks to the girls for those great questions. Uh, you bet. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.